Okay? Good. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, oh God, please, please help this morning as I say, Thus saith the Lord. Help your word to go forth with clarity. Help it to be accurate, of sound mind. And I pray that what you've given me to say would be an encouragement and a blessing to your people, your church, this local assembly. Oh God, sanctify it. Strengthen it with all your might to do the work of your kingdom. I thank you for the labors for many years through this church and others that have given so much to the ministry and the Korowai people. Father, I pray for them this morning, as now it's Sunday evening. I ask that you would not only work in the church there that Bethany's been a part of, but that you would save these people. And Father, if there's anyone here that does not know you, that does not have a relationship with you, In saving faith, I pray that you would open their hearts to receive that, that you would save them. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only one that has claim to that verse. The only one. Now, based on that text in Hebrews 13, 8, it should be no surprise that Jesus Christ has never ceased to be faithful to his church. His church. For many decades now, God has shown his faithfulness to this local assembly. You realize that? Many decades. Now, you might ask, because I ask these questions, in fact, I I might be different than many, I don't know, but I always ask a lot of questions as I study. What does that faithfulness, faithfulness from him look like to the local assembly, such as Bethany? I mean, how is it that hundreds and hundreds of people have come through these doors over the years? Some have left. Some have stayed. Some have died. Some have walked away from the faith. Some have suffered. On and on. How is it that he's faithful to his people? What do you mean by God's faithfulness to this assembly? Here's what I mean that God has been faithful to this assembly. The spiritual life of Bethany Bible Church does not consist or ever will consist in its members. Do you realize that? We must understand that. The spiritual life of Bethany Bible Church does not consist because of its members. It consists only because of the living head, Jesus Christ the head of the church, who saves the people for himself and brings them in to faithfully worship in this assembly. 
The life of this assembly, Bethany Bible Church, is dependent also upon the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. And I can say with many preachers, I would not want to stand up here for a second if I did not have the power of the Holy Spirit. I would rather sit down. That is why I plead with the Lord, Father, use me in the power of your Holy Spirit. The church, the assembly, is dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts so that we can go out and bear fruit for his kingdom. We must understand that the spiritual life of this assembly consists because of the sweet doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That is a beautiful doctrine that we hold to. One that we must die for. It consists in worship to God the Father in spirit and truth. It consists in constant prayer in the name of Christ Jesus to the Father. It consists in a biblical mandate to preach His name to all the nations. No matter how dangerous that is. This assembly consists under the biblical authority of elders who must and continually be shaped and formed by the Word of God. You see, members have come and gone over the years in many assemblies, even in this assembly. And more will come and go from this assembly. But mark it down that this assembly, Bethany Bible Church, who is dependent on Christ as the head and the power of the Holy Spirit and his unending faithfulness will not come and go. Do you understand the difference? It will not come and go. Why will you remain? Why will I remain? I'll tell you how this assembly will remain. Because if you are his and he is yours, God will not allow you to turn away from him. He will not allow it. Now, we must not forget for one second that those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have confessed their sins and have repented and believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, have been blood-bought in a new covenant The new covenant. That new covenant, in that new covenant, you are secured forever. Forever. Do you realize that? This cup that has been poured out for you in the new covenant is for you in my blood. Luke 22.20 This means that if you belong to Christ, this new covenant is yours. It's yours. You own it because of his sacrificial work. Jeremiah 32 speaks of this new covenant. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. And then he uses two words, with all my heart and with all my soul. Why is Bethany Bible Church still here? 
because of God's goodness and faithfulness with all his heart and with all his soul. You know what that says to me? That it's all of grace. It's all of grace. It's all of grace that Bethany Bible Church is still here, and it will be all of grace that it's here for another year. You know, it's all of grace that perhaps you woke up in pain this morning and maybe in tears. Maybe you were crying because of your pain or some circumstance. And you didn't get up and you didn't curse God. It's all of grace that you didn't do that this morning. It's all of grace that you can say in your pain and in your suffering, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all of grace that you will endure until the end. You see that? Now, with that said, I want to look at one verse this morning. Verse 18, Matthew 16, verse 18. And I want to look at several phrases that he uses, that Jesus uses here, speaking to Peter specifically, but in front of his disciples. Look at the amazing statement where he says, I will build, in verse 18, I'm going to skip ahead a little, I will build my church. I will build my church. You see, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head. Now, in this section of Scripture, this phrase is of vital importance. It's very important that we understand every word. In fact, every word of this phrase is important. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not Mark Snyder, not Dave Zozel. Not any other pastor of another local assembly, assembly, but Christ, Jesus, is the head. In this section of scripture, Christ is the builder. We see that. I will build my church. We see that by the first person pronoun, I. I will build my church. The Lord Jesus is the one personally doing the work of building his church. Not his disciples. Now, if you're counted in the assembly of God, his church, you're here because he personally did the work of adding you to his church. He did that. No man. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 2.47. The Lord added. The Lord added. This promise here that he says to Peter... I will build my church is a promise that is recalling something from Jeremiah. It's very interesting. It's God's promise from Jeremiah 31 verse 4. Listen to this verse. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Or in Amos Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So those two texts give us proof that they speak of God's chosen people that God is promising 
to build. He's promising that. The church of Jesus Christ is always built one soul at a time. One soul at a time. You think about the billions of people. And all the way into the most remote place in the world, the Korowai people. Built one soul at a time. There's no humanness in this work. The Lord is doing this work of building his church. Christ alone is doing this work. That's what he's trying to relate to Peter. I will build my church. Now, I need to ask a very important question, I think, here. Because it's important when we look at the phrase, I will build my church. Do we realize how much we are loved by Jesus? Do you realize how much you're loved by Jesus Christ? Do you realize how much you're loved by the Trinity? By this Trinitarian work that secured your redemption? You're loved with an infinite divine love that called you out from among the peoples of the world so that you could be a separate, holy people for his name through the substituting sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, who was cursed who suffered, who was buried, and who rose again for your salvation. No one else loves you like that in all the world. It's an eternal love. I will build my church. I will build my church. That is a divine love. Now, notice something here from this phrase. I will build my church, that this is a future active verb. I will build. Now, why use a future active verb? Why didn't Jesus say to Peter, I am building my church? Or, I have built my church and will continue to build it. What's, why this future active verb here? Well, some argue that because he... Uh, says, I will build, they believe that Jesus has never started building his church up until this point. They believe that. Some argue. I've read a lot behind, and I know a lot of people uh, talking about this text. They believe that Jesus never started building his church up until this point. I'm going to argue that that's not the case. That's not the case at all. The meaning here is that Jesus will continue to build his church just like he has in the past. That's what he's saying there. So we can't forget about the assembly of God, God's people, in the Old Testament. Listen to Numbers chapter 16, verse 3. The assembly, they assembled themselves together against Moses... And against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? God has always been at work at saving his people. Do you realize that? He's always been at work. God has for many millennia. 
been saving his chosen people. But now under this new covenant, we learn that Christ will continue his salvific work of building his church. I will continue to build my church, Peter. This is his faithfulness on display. He's faithful. He can't go back on his word. You see, when God makes a promise, those promises are kept through his unending faithfulness. There is certainty in this particular phrase. There's not a maybe. There's not, well, I'd like to. There is certainty here in this phrase. I will build my church. And we know of John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. It doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter if, if tomorrow America is destroyed. It doesn't matter how apostate people become. We've all seen people fall away from the faith. It doesn't matter how evil things get. It doesn't matter how wicked people become. Christ is faithful to build His church no matter what circumstance happens. We belong to Him and Him alone. And no man can thwart that. No man can thwart that. Not the evilest, vilest being or circumstance can stop Christ from building His church. Romans 8.38, what a blessed text, right? I, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, according to verse 18, Matthew 16.18, whose church is it? Now, I'm going to just be honest. I grew up thinking I was a Christian. And I heard this text from Sunday schools, from maybe preachers, I don't know, but definitely from school. I always had a misunderstanding about this text. This text, I just thought he was talking about something totally different. Whose church is it? Well, we know that it's Christ's church. Because he tells Peter, I will build my church. Not Peter's church, not the disciples' church, but my church. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's church. Now that says that there is um, exclusivity here in this phrase. He is the one who paid for it with his own life. He is the one who bore the sin of sinful man. He paid the price by his sacrificial atonement when he bore the sins of all those that the Father had given him. And not one will be lost. Not one. He says in John 17, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. You see, you can sit there gloriously confident this morning and at rest in your soul 
with eternal peace that because of his faithfulness to his promises, you are now and forever his own possession. His own possession. Unless you don't know him. That is why the word church here that Jesus uses in verse 18 is so important. I will build my church. I will build my church. He uses a Greek word here, and you've heard it before, ekklesia. This is the first use of that word in the New Testament. That's interesting. It's the first use of that word. Now, even though this word is translated church, what it means is the assembly of the elect. Just like we saw in Numbers, the assembly of the Lord. It means the assembly of the elect, those that are marked out, those that the Father had given to the Son. That assembly, the elect, it means a congregation, the assembly of God. The justified, sanctified, and glorified saints. The church, the ecclesia, the word that Christ uses here, are the ones who are born again, cleansed from all sin. Now, in our day, the word church has been misused. And we've, you can see that. You don't have to go far to read an article or flip on the TV to some sort of religious station and see a false church that's calling themselves a church. The word church has been misused. In fact, we even say, right? I I say it all the time. Well, I'm going to church, right? We use that word. What do we really mean? I'm going to, well, what we really mean is I'm going to worship. I'm going to meet the assembly of God. I am going to lift my voice in song and my heart in prayer and to the listening of the word with the people of God. When we say, I am going to church. It's been misused a lot. And it means a lot differently. The meaning of it's a lot different in our day than when Christ said it here to Peter, I will build my church. You know, I tell the core white people all the time when I'm preaching, usually I have to, I have to holler because it's so loud and I'm usually barefooted. I'm, I like preaching barefoot. <laughs> uh, of course I have a towel right here when I preach because I'm sweating so bad, but I tell the core white people all the time, And I bang on the wall of the building in the jungle and I say, this is not the church of God. Because a lot of them believe that when they attend the services, they're okay before God if they enter that building. I bang on the walls and I say, this is not the church of God. This is a building. This will rot. The termites will get it. It will fall apart if I don't keep it up. If I don't repair it, you are the chosen people of God. You are the assembly of the Lord. If indeed you have saving faith, you are his personal possession. 
No matter how the word church has been labeled in our culture today, the truth of the matter is that the Lord has always been jealous for his church. He's always been jealous for his church. The Lord has always identified himself with the church. In fact, Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8 says, For he who touches you, touches what? The apple of my eye. He who touches you, touches the apple of my eye. What does that mean? Well, the phrase apple of my eye means that if someone harms his people, that is to poke the finger in God's eye. You realize that? You harm my people, you're poking me in the cornea. Now, we know that the cornea is very sensitive. Knew a woman recently that had eye surgery, and she was in so much pain, she, probably, she was just, she couldn't do anything. Those of you that have eye pain know what I'm talking about. The cornea is very sensitive, and to have it poked would do the eye great harm. My son and I like to play Nerf Wars, and when he shoots me in the eye, it hurts. The Lord is so passionate about his church that to harm his church is to harm him. To bring pain to the church is to bring pain to him. So how are we to understand Jesus' usage of the word church in verse 18? Well, it's this word, like I said before, this is the first time it's used, but it's only used twice in the gospel, in the gospels, excuse me, here in chapter 16, verse 18, and in Matthew 18, verse 17. We also see this word used in Acts and Paul's epistles. But here in verse 18 is where we're most concerned because this is the central, the key phrase to all the book of Matthew. This is the centrality of the gospel of Matthew. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus does not explain his meaning to Peter. At least we don't get that in the scriptures here. So it must, we must conclude that Peter and the other apostles present must have understood the reality of its meaning. The reality is that its general usage means assembly, congregation, community. Because they would have known the Old Testament. If Jesus, now, it's possible, if Jesus spoke to the apostles here in Aramaic, which is possible, he would have used the word ka'al, which in Hebrew means an invited gathering, speaking about the synagogue, an invited gathering. That's interesting. It was after the day of Pentecost that the word ecclesia, also known as church, well, our translation, was used in reference to a specific community of believers believing in the work of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And at Pentecost, we know 3,000 souls were added the first time. And then 5,000 a little later, 8,000 souls were added to the assembly, the church. And it began to spread to the whole world, all the way to Big Lake, Minnesota. 2,000 some years later. That's awesome. I want to read to you, I put it in your bulletin, I want to read something that fits this from the London Baptist Confession, the 1689 It's Article 26, speaking on the church. The church. It says this. The Catholic, that is, universal church, may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, there is an invisible church and there is a visible church. And what I mean by that, there is an internal working of the spirit of Christ in the hearts of all those that the father has given to the son. That is the invisible church. Then there is a visible church, those that profess faith in Christ before the world and continue to be obedient to Him, no matter what circumstance. Those are the visible church. Those are the visible saints. Now to emphasize that, we see in verse 18, our Lord says, what does He say? Begin with, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter, you're Peter. You're, and in Indonesian, it's Petrus. In Greek, it's Petra. You're Peter. The word Peter means A stone, a small stone. Now that's interesting because it gets even better. The word Peter means a small, movable, now notice that, movable stone. But here's what I misunderstood growing up. What does it mean when he says, Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, Peter can be translated rock, could it not? It's a stone. It's a small, movable stone. Is Jesus saying, Peter, on you, I'm going to build my church? That's what I always thought growing up. I thought he was saying, Peter, on you, I will build my church. But that's not the case. That's not what he's saying. The phrase, and on this rock, Peter, on this rock, this is a bedrock. This is a massive formation of rock underneath the face of the mountain. And as we fly over the mountains of Papua, and those of you who have gone over mountains where there's just massive formations of rock, there's bedrocks under there, just massive formations. They're immovable. They're immovable rocks. 
This is what that phrase is talking about. A massive formation of bedrock that cannot be moved. Now, Jesus is clear here with that phrase. Peter, what is he saying? So he says, Peter, I will continue to build my church on an immovable rock. That's what he's saying. I will build my church on an immovable rock. A massive formation that is unmovable. Now, what is the immovable rock? It's what Peter confessed to our Lord in verse... Look where he says in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is the immovable rock. He is the immovable rock. Corinthians... Um, 2 Corinthians 10.4 And all dr- drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. I, honestly, uh, it could be a capital R here. <laughs> I mean, if you... Sometimes even the ESV doesn't get it right in this translation. Romans 9.33 As it was written, Behold... I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, Peter is not the foundation. That's what this verse kind of, it almost the way it flows, it almost makes it sound like Peter is the foundation. Peter, you're Peter and on this rock, it almost makes it sound like Peter's the foundation, but it's not the way it's translated. Peter is a small stone in the grand story. Of the kingdom of God. Now, according to verse 18, this rock as the foundation is not movable like Peter, but immovable. 1 Corinthians 3.11 There is no foundation that can be laid than Jesus Christ. It's Christ, not Peter, that will build the church. It's not Peter. Peter's just a small stone in the grand story. Now we must understand something. This is why you and I preach Christ crucified for sinners. This God-man, truly God and truly man, is the bedrock of the church. We proclaim with loud voices that Jesus is Lord and God. I proclaim that in the most remote jungles, and I proclaim it in Virginia, and I proclaim it in Minnesota. Wherever we go, we must proclaim that this immovable rock is Lord and God. If Christ crucified is not preached, now listen to me, if it's Christ is not preached that he was crucified for sinners. If he's not preached as Lord and God, then it's not a true church. It's not a true church. If there is any heretical view of Christ among that so-called assembly, then it's not a true church. That's why I would, I say this before God and man, I would give everything To make sure that no heretical view or heresy falls in to the Korowai church. 
I'm always on my guard when people write, I want to come. Or I hear someone being flown in that call themselves a pastor. I want to know what they believe. I don't want to put the Korowai in that position. If any view other than what's based in the scriptures is preached, then it's not a true church. In fact, we could truly say that it's a synagogue or an assembly of Satan. Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, Christ is the focus. Christ is the object of our worship, friends. And where you find a true assembly of Christ, there you have a true church that Jesus is speaking of in this verse. I will build my church. 1 Timothy 3.15 If I delay, speaking to Titus, Paul, speaking speaking to Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and a pillar and a buttress of truth. If truth is not taught, then it's not a church. It's not an assembly. It's not a congregation. God is faithful to his church by declaring through the Son of God that this Christ, the bedrock of our faith. And that's what he says here on this rock. He's speaking of the bedrock. The bedrock of our faith will do what he was sent to do. He'll do what he was sent to do. He will bring his church to the full number. However many there are in Big Lake, however many there are in the Korowai, he will bring it to the full number. Now, how will he bring it? The assembly, the church, the congregation, how will he bring it to the full number? How will he do it? Well, listen to Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by from hearing and hearing through the word of God. That means the church will come to its full number through only one method. The preaching of the word. The preaching of the gospel. It will only happen by those means. And I see it all over Papua. How many times have I seen it where people are looking for other means when it's right in front of them? There are no other means given how a person comes to Christ. Do you realize that? Listen to me. Those of you that do not know Christ. There are no other means. There is no other way. John 14, 6. To be saved, but through the preaching of the gospel, which proclaims Christ as the only way. It has always been and will always be the preaching of the gospel until Christ's consummation for all things. And that's really uh, Revelation 14, 6. The consummation of all things when the angel will preach the eternal gospel. But it doesn't stop there. 
There is a sanctifying work of grace in the life of the believer as they grow in the scriptures and sit under the preaching of their local church. You want to know how faithful God is to you here at Bethany Bible Church? The Lord has given you leadership here at Rosemont that places the scriptures as the central means of grace for your soul. They don't place activities. They don't place strategies above the word of God. The word of God is central and it must always be central. You come to the Korowai and you'll find nothing but teaching. That's all you'll find. You'll find a few songs without any instruments. I love the instruments, by the way. You'll find a few songs without instruments and then the preaching of the word. And that's it over and over and over day after day. There is no other activity, no other strategy that will do. It's only through the centrality of the word of God proclaimed to people. Now, if you think about how many people sit, I mean, it's just sad, isn't it? You think about how many people sit week after week in a chair, just like you, looking at the speaker or so-called pastor, and they hear nothing. All they hear is a speech. They don't get into the meat of the word, and they walk away hungry, and they don't even know it. And they walk out of the church still in their carnality. You see, this is God's faithfulness here to build and continue to build his church so that when the Son of Man returns, he will find his bride ready to bring to himself. Now, notice the last phrase of verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this bedrock, this immovable rock, which is Christ, I will continue to build my church. And then he says an interesting phrase. And the gates of hell shall not, what, prevail or overcome against it. What in the world does that mean? What is he saying to Peter? What does Jesus mean when he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Well, at the surface reading of this phrase, the statement really tells the reader that the church will not be destroyed. We know that. I mean, you believe that. You know that the church will not be destroyed. The phrase gates of hell, which, by the way, I was talking about this earlier this week. I don't believe that's an accurate translation. I really like, uh, for instance, the New King James has it. The gates of hell is not an accurate translation. It should be interpreted as the gates of Hades, which is the Greek word Hades. The gates of Hades. This phrase, the gates of Hades, Or hell, some translations, which again is not accurate, has been normally been interpreted to mean that Satan's forces are coming through the gates of hell and attacking the church. I mean, you read that 
and you think, well, all the demons are coming through the pounding through the gates and trying to get at the people and disrupt their faith. This isn't an accurate interpretation. It's just not accurate. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus uses a word here, a Greek word for gate, which means a movable barrier. It's a movable gate in a fence. Now imagine a fence, a long fence, with, an, with a movable barrier, a movable gate. Gates are meant to protect, right? You close the gate, you lock it up so no one can get in. In prisons, they close the gate so the prisoner cannot get out to keep from escaping. So keep that in mind. Along with that word, Jesus uses the Greek word hades, which is, we say, hades. Hades. Now that should not be translated hell, even as the ESV does, which I use the ESV, but it shouldn't be translated hell. I believe the New King James has it right. Hades refers to the realm of the dead, which in Jewish mind is under the ocean. The realm of the dead consisting under the darkness of the ocean. The Hebrew word, you've heard it, Sheol, that David uses a lot in the psalm, is corresponding word to Hades. Psalm 16, 7 says, For you will not abandon my soul to what? Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. So, when the, word, when the words gate and Hades are understood, we realize that Jesus was saying, No barrier, no gate is strong enough to overpower or hold God's church in death. That just clears that whole scripture or that whole verse up. No gate, no barrier is strong enough to hold God's people in death. The gates of Hades will not Prevail against it. Death cannot keep God's church in the place of the dead. That's what he's saying to Peter. Wow. It just will not happen. This is a divine power that will not keep you and I in the place of the dead. This is God's faithfulness to his church. To not keep us in the grave. And you know as well as I do that Jesus has already conquered over sin and death. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Romans 6 verses 8 and 9. Christ's victory over Satan's power of death is so sure, in fact, that we see the author of Hebrews write about it in the past tense. Do you know that? 
Christ's victory over Satan's power of death is so sure that we see the author of Hebrews write about it in the past tense. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Christ is faithful to build his church. He is faithful to you here at Bethany. Now, you want to know something? You want to know if you're living where Christ is building his church? Do you want to know if you're living in and where Christ is building his church? Several questions. Are you studying the Word of God? Are you reading the Word of God? Are you letting it saturate your mind? Over and over and over. Are you praying constantly? Are you praying constantly? Are you walking in the Spirit and bearing much spiritual fruit? Are you submissive to your church leadership and serving faithfully in this assembly? That is how you know if you're living where Christ is building his church. Don't expect to truly live if you're not in the word. Life. The scripture is life. God will never let his people, his church, turn away from him. And you and I are kept secure forever by the faithfulness of Christ. Why is it that on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, you can still wake up a Christian? It's because you have been blood-bought by Jesus with an everlasting covenant in Him. Now, if you're not a Christian, here's what you need to hear. You need to hear something very important, so I hope you'll listen if you're not a Christian. If you can sit there and say, well, I don't know if I know him or I don't know Jesus in saving faith. Here is what you need to hear. There is a holy God that is sinless and far above all his creation. He created all things. He is over all and controlling all. He created man and woman in his likeness. They were holy and perfect like Him without sin. And God gave them a commandment to obey in the garden where they were placed to work. They broke that commandment, that covenant they had with God, by disobeying that commandment. They became sinful human beings which destroyed all fellowship and communion with their Maker. God punished them with a physical and spiritual death. Now, all men and women everywhere in all of the universe, in all of time, because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin against God. We are born in sin and are under God's judgment and wrath. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For many centuries, in order to have communion with God and be accepted by Him, God required sacrifices. 
with the shedding of blood to cleanse the people from their sins. God would look upon his people and their obedience to his, keep his law, but they couldn't keep it. Just like you can't keep it. They could not keep his law and continue to sin against God and received his judgment and punishment. And they died in their sins, those that did not repent. But there is hope for you and for all of sinners. In eternity past, God the Father made a covenant with his Son, Jesus Christ. And he said, will you go to the earth? And Jesus said, I'll go. Jesus Christ came to the earth as a man. He is truly God and truly man. And Jesus said to him, I'll go. I'll go. Jesus came to this earth. He left his heavenly home, came to this earth and lived a sinless life among sinful people. He completed what our first parents could not ever do. He kept God's law perfectly. He never once sinned. He never once had a sexual thought. He never once disobeyed his mother. He kept God's law perfectly. He never sinned. He was the perfect sacrifice to save sinners like you and me. He willingly lived a perfect life on this earth, willingly went to the cross, a wooden cross of shame and humiliation, and suffered a horrific death where we would have turned our eyes from, from just disgust so that men and women of every nation of all the earth can be saved, can be changed. He took upon himself the sin of sinful man and gave his own very own righteousness to man. He bore the sin of man on the cross. He took the place of what sinners deserve. He took your place. What you deserve, he gladly accepted through the covenant that he had with his father. He took the place of sinners. And he took on the wrath of Almighty God. He was buried in a tomb on the third day and rose. He was buried in a tomb and on the third day rose from the dead to prove that he has power over sin and death. He now is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of his father. And what he is doing now is very clear in the scriptures. He commands all men and women everywhere in all of the world to repent and believe in him alone for the forgiveness of sins. Those of you that have not repented and believed in the only son of God for the forgiveness of sins, you know what's going to happen one day. You will face the wrath of Almighty God. You will face His wrath. 
and you will experience eternal judgment separated from him forever. You will be cast away from the presence of God forever into eternal darkness. Jesus' commandment is so clear. It's so clear. Repent and believe in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and he will save you from your sins. I will build my church. I will build it. I will, Peter, listen to me. I will continue to build my church. My people, those all that the Father has given me, those that come to me, come to me, all of you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will build my church. I will build it on myself, he's saying, on this immovable rock, this bedrock of our faith. He will build it upon himself, and death will not hold his church in the grave. But you must know him. You must know him. So I beg you to consider these things. Consider these things. And if you are part of his church, give yourself to the study of the word. Give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to these things. And you will truly live. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this few moments in this text. I thank you for this church. I thank you for building your church. I thank you for these dear people. Oh God, sanctify us. Mold us into the image of your son. Thank you for these promises. And I pray that you would build your church among the nations and especially build the church in the Korowai. Thank you for what these people have done over the years in that area of the world and even now as they minister by giving to other um, ministries among the nations. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Very encouraging uh, message for us this morning. As we consider, uh, as he was speaking this morning, I was thinking back over the last 23 years since I've been here and what God has done. And as he said, many have come and many have gone. And Bethany Bible Church is still here. It is still, we are still preaching the gospel. We are still supporting uh, gospel mission work. And by his grace, we will continue to do that until he takes us out of the way. So thank you so much for, those, for that encouragement.